0: Good afternoon everybody this is patrick milliken from the poison pen bookstore in scottsdale arizona and thanks for joining us for another of our virtual events uh today we have back on our program here anne williams uh the general editor for the national geographic who has this just gorgeous as barbara's holding it up to book uh treasury treasures of egypt a legacy and photographs from the pyramids to cleopatra And uh, the folks from National Geographic sent me a bunch of images, so I'll be happy to put those up on the screen in a moment. But uh, welcome, Anne.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be back with you.
0: So last year we did a wonderful event with Anne and Douglas Preston called Lost Cities and Ancient Tombs. And hilariously, Doug, who thought maybe 25 people would want his signature, had agreed to sign the introduction. It was like 500 books later <laughs> that we finally had to say, you know, because books like this are extremely difficult to ship around. Um, and, you know, um, he he had no idea what he was letting himself in for. Neither did we. Um, but anyway, it was a real pleasure. So this time around, we don't have autographed copies. We have this fabulous book, which is one of my great recommendations for Christmas because this is, November was, still is, November today, the uh, 100th anniversary of the discovery and opening of King Tudok Amman's tomb by Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon, And it's back in the news, not only because of the discovery, but there are now some interesting theories that uh, who the tomb was meant for, and maybe there's more Beyond it, there's an Oxford archeologist, you probably know who he is, and I can't think of his name, who's got a theory that um, there's that this is the ante room for a bigger tomb. And if they could just like see through the wall or punch a hole in the wall or something, which nobody really wants to do, um, they could discover whether that's true. And partly that is the very difficult family history of King Tru. Common and, and that the whole um, family of Akhenaten and Nefertiti in the whole pit. So lots to talk about. I want to show you because I really like this. This is a picture that is taken in the old Egyptian Museum, which is a Victorian building. Do you remember when it was building?
1: I believe it opened in 1902.
0: So not quite Victorian. It's really Edwardian. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's old. Um, And it's not ideal for as a museum in terms of um, taking care of its treasures. Uh, It was built before climate controls, air conditioning, the lighting when I was there was absolutely terrible Um, and, and security not necessarily great. So this is one of the reasons that Egypt is building its, what's it called, the great Egyptian.
1: Grand Egyptian Museum, or as we popularly call it, the gem. It's about um, a, a little over a mile's walk to the northwest of the pyramids at Giza. Um, and I believe there's going to be a walkway constructed so that if people want to take that stroll, they can take it. Um, the gem is, is really quite a wonderful facility. It is Um, It has been 10 years in the design and construction. It cost 1 billion with a B dollars to build. Um, But when it finally opens, and we're waiting for that to happen any minute, it is just going to be wonderful. I got a sneak preview in 2019 on a tour when I was in Egypt. Um, We saw the museum, it was almost done. Um, And and it was just glorious. But it's not only a museum, it is a whole sort of um, complex for the display and study of antiquities. It includes, I think, 10 state-of-the-art conservation labs. Um, It includes facilities for scholars. It includes facilities for conventions to be held there um, and this big, amazing museum. Um, And so it is just, we, we are just all waiting for it to open, putting it on our bucket list saying, you know, I hope the next time I go to Egypt, this thing will be open. Um, but what is happening is that there have been decisions made about moving some key artifacts out of the Egyptian Museum in Cairo right. and moving them to the Gem, and that includes, but is not limited to, all of King Tutankhamun's stuff. Right. And King Tut's stuff, I mean, some of it was on display at the downtown museum in Cairo. I know there used to be a textile museum near the Khan al-Khalili, the big market in the downtown old part of Cairo. And I know for sure Tut's clean linen underwear were in that museum because I saw them there. I know Hmm. also that there are a lot of things... (laughs) Storage. And so, one of the wonderful things about the gem is that there are galleries that have been purposely designed and constructed to put together all of King Tutankhamun's stuff, all the more than 5,000 items from his tomb to reunite those things for the first time in 100 years. They will all be brought together in those galleries in the new museum. Um, So that's just one of the wonderful things that's going to happen. The other thing that I think since you brought up the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, I've seen photographs of it now and they really are making a concerted effort to Um, make the lighting better, make the signage better, make the displays more intriguing and more informative. Um, So this is all part of Egypt's effort right now to build new, new museums, to make the country more attractive for tourists so that people can visit the Egyptian Museum in downtown Cairo, which is just a step away from some of the big hotels um, and go to the gym and go to the National Museum of the Egyptian Civilization, which just opened um, and where all the mummies have been moved. So it, it really is a wonderful time for Egypt because it's showcasing all of these new things.
0: Well, it also is highlighting the fact that Egyptians are finally taking charge of their own archaeology and their own museumology, which, you know, was not the case. Carnarvon was British and, you know, many of the archaeologists that given us the Egypt that we think of, I mean, they most of them were not Egyptian. So, I, I really like the idea that they are doing that. I spent a whole day in the Cairo Museum. We were staying at the Sophie which is at Tahrir Square. And we were there, interestingly enough, in January of um, right before the uh, desert, you know, the
1: Arab Spring. What they call it oh, Desert beautiful. Spring.
0: And wow. I, had, I had broken a bone in my leg. So, while everybody else went to Giza and Saqqara, where I had already been, and which I knew I couldn't walk. I was able to, with the hotel's assistance, get to the um, museum in Cairo, which is very close to Charter Square, and spend an entire day there. And I was absolutely fascinated. But then I have to tell you, Anne, that as a person who is addicted to Elizabeth Peters' amazing Amelia Peabody series, I think any, any fan of historical mystery probably has read the Amelia Peabody's, which are based upon um, so an actual, I can't think of her name at the moment, but an actual British um, archeologist and, or woman anyway, who traveled in Egypt. And so seeing it all was amazing. And Akhenaten, the statues of him are not, were not with the King Tut, which was up on the second floor in the front and had, I have to tell you, really terrible lighting and it was all dusty, but mm. um, it would be nice if, if, if that whole sort of family could be grouped together in the new museum so that there was some continuity you know, um, in it. But we're here to talk about the whole thing. So um, Patrick, what images have you got that you would like to display yeah. that Anne could discuss? Because we're talking about generations, uh, millennia actually, and um, mm-hmm. this wonderful book does not stint on taking you from 3000 or earlier BC. Down to the reign of it ends with Cleopatra, which of course is when Ptolemaic Egypt came to an end and Rome took
1: over. I'm a very linear thinker. So I have begun that book at the beginning. I began it with some of the early um, settlements where kings came from, Abidos and Nechen, which later became called Hieracompolis down in the south. And then I go right through to Cleopatra. I'm just Uh, you know, chronologically. Um, I've also structured it sort of like an atlas. My idea was that a lot of people don't go to Egypt or think about Egypt um, saying, I want to know everything there is to know about the old kingdom. They say on Tuesday, we're going to Giza. What's that all about? And so You know that that is what how i structured the book so that people can open it up and find out about this now this photograph i believe is abu simbel it is as you see um it is before the archaeologists got there so you can really see how the sand has shifted in. And I don't know whether people can see the full frame, but at the bottom of the photograph, there's a tiny human. I'm not seeing him, but, but there is a, a, a very tiny human. Um, so that, yes, there he is. There so he is. you can see the scale of those just enormous um, seated statues of Ramses II. Um, Ramses II was one of the great pharaohs of Egypt, and, and he was exceptional in so many ways. Mm-hmm. He, he was young when he took over the throne, and he lived into his 90s. So he, he really sat on the throne for 60 years or so, which meant, and he had more wives than we can count. And we think he had more than 100 children. So you can just imagine what a household that was. Um, And the the problem with that was that, you know, because he sat on the throne so long, some of his sons had begun to die by the time, you know, he left this earth. So that created, you know, lots of problems after he reigned. Um, But anyway, this, this temple at Abu Simbel is one of the great, um, one of his great statements about who he was and how, um, how vast his territories were because Abu Simbel was down into what we now call Nubia. Um, Now, this is a wonderful photograph. This is from Tutankhamun's tomb. And we are looking from what what we now call the antechamber into the burial chamber. So you see there is still some of that mud sealing the entrance to the burial chamber. Um, And you can see some of the stamps that were put on that mud ceiling to Um, to let everybody know that that officials had sealed that um, that opening and in the inside the burial chamber what you see here is one of the walls of the outermost funerary shrine so these funerary shrines were nested, I believe there were four of them um, and from there, you get to that famous photograph of Howard Carter kneeling in front of one of those shrines, and there is rope wrapped around one of the the um, the handle that closes it, and and that rope is sealed with another official seal, and that was the moment when Howard Carter was able to say, "Aha! This is an untouched." Burial. When we get into here, we are going to find King Tut in you know whatever state he is after three thousand years. Um, and here we see um, on the outside of in the antechamber, guarding the door, guarding the doorway, we see two guardian statues. Um, which are very cool. So they yeah. are very cool. I,
0: I, I have yeah. a photo on my phone, which I found, which I was just, um, well, I can't, I'll, I'll show it to you. I have a couple of photos of what it looks like right now. <laughs> Sorry. My... It's the dogs have just come home. <laughs> Beg your pardon. Oh, that's a beautiful picture. And is that? That's fine, yeah,
1: right. I believe this is the temple at Philae. Yeah. And this is uh, this was a Greco-Roman temple. So sort of later on in the time period it was, you know, Greco meaning Cleopatra's family descended from one of the generals that accompanied Alexander the Great in his conquest of Egypt. So they were Greek speaking. Um, and then after the Greeks, after Cleopatra made you know, such a mess with um, Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, the Romans came in. And so this temple dates from that time period. But this temple has a similar st- modern story to Abu Simbel because um, the Nile River, back in antiquity, um, flooded every year. It would rain in Ethiopia like crazy. The monsoons would come, and then that water would flood Egypt. Now, that was a good thing because it carried rich volcanic soil from Ethiopia and spread it over the fields of the Nile, uh, the fields of Egypt. And then when it stopped raining in Ethiopia, the Nile would recede, drop that silt. And that would be natural fertilization for the farmers. Um, But when the rains were too ferocious, the communities on the edge of the floodplain really got got hit. Um, You know, people and animals got killed, buildings got destroyed. Um, So there was a thought Um, Well, actually, uh, quite a number of times, there were older dams that were built on the Nile to try to control it. And then in about 1960, the Egyptian government started to build what is now known as the Aswan High Dam. Um, and And that was great because it controlled the Nile so that there was not this wild flooding. It also generates a lot of electrical power, which is you know wonderful for the people living in Egypt. But there were a lot of ancient sites like Philae, like Abu Simbel um, that were going to be covered by the lake that was created when the dam was built. Um, that lake is like Nasser. And so there was an international um, rescue program put together um, spearheaded by Egypt on the one hand and UNESCO I believe on the other and they literally cut apart Abu Simbel and moved it to higher ground and they literally pulled apart these temples which were once on the island of Philae and they moved them to a nearby island that was higher that was not going to be Flooded. So I believe in this picture, you see the temples in their new place. Um, These temples have been deconstructed and moved to this higher island. Oh, Oh,
0: this. Can you go back, Patrick, for a minute? I'm sorry, I didn't realize I had muted myself because the dogs were shrieking. Um, if you go back to the top of that photograph, that is the Eswan, High Dam, that kind of brown line that goes across there. And to visit this island, you sail from over there on the, you can see their boats, and you sail around the island. I mean, you land, you can see the landing place. But it's really interesting to circumnavigate this island and see these tombs or temples from, you know, from different aspects. And there's a small one different from the big one that really is interesting with stuff inside it. But we also have the Temple of Dender in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which, you know, was um, raised by by all those.
1: Uh, and that, that was part of the deal, that yeah. I believe the Met got that temple. They did. Uh, for, uh, because it was going to be, you know, um, one of, so it was going to be flooded. Yeah. So this is one of the most wonderful chapters. Um, of and, and one of the most intriguing chapters of modern archaeology. This is the solid silver coffin of a late period king named Susenes, and his tomb was in the northern part of Egypt. In in what we call the Delta. And a French archeologist was digging there. Um, It's a site that we know of of as Tanis, And he was digging there um, in the late 1930s and early 1940. And he found a number of Royal, burials, including the burial of this king. And there was a lot of gold, a lot of silver. Um, and um, But the rest of the world was right on the brink of World War II. And, um, and all of the headlines were consumed with the impending war and what it was going to mean and what it was going to entail. And this discovery was just um, not really covered at all. And so a lot of people who are not in the business of Egyptology don't know about this king and don't know about this fabulous coffin and this really quite wonderful treasure that was found in the tomb of this King. Now, back when the things of King Tutankhamun were still in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, this sarcophagus, I believe, was in the next room beside all of King Tut's bling. So people would go in and see the golden mask of King Tut and all of his necklaces and all of his Bracelets and all of his other fabulous jewelry and 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 their eyes would just be so bugged out that that they didn't even stop in and see Susanas, but it really is worth seeing. Um, There was a time in ancient Egyptian history that gold with that silver was considered to be even more precious than gold. Um, and to the ancient Egyptians the skin of the gods was gold and their bones were silver um, so that is part of the symbolism that you're seeing here these were eternal metals and really belonged to the gods um, and so that's why they were used in royal burials it looks
0: like the ureus though the the, the part of the headdress is in gold is it
1: Oh yes, the, and the archeo- and the iconography has continued on um, for yeah. you know twenty five hundred years at this point. Oh, this is so wonderful too. Um, this is the new museum in Alexandria and it really is quite wonderful. I was there about a month ago and, and and just, you know, I've been there a number of times before and I just stood there again loving this building all over again. So, you know, the, the story of Alexandria was that it was founded by Alexander the Great after his conquest of Egypt. And then the city of Alexandria grew to be just a wonderful, interesting, cosmopolitan center of trade and learning and scholarship and culture. And there was a very famous library there that was filled with, it was a repository of all, all of the learning that could be gathered at that time period. And um, sadly, it burnt in antiquity. And you can just imagine all of the wisdom that that building contained. But of course, all of that stuff, unlike previous eras when texts would have been written, very often written on um, pieces of clay, Um, tablets of clay so that they have been preserved for us Um, books that books and scrolls and texts that are written on papyrus um, you know uh, one goes up in flames and everything goes up in flames and that's what happened to that building so there was a decision made um, some years ago now because I remember seeing this museum oof Maybe 20 years ago, um, uh, this um, this library. About 20 years ago, so there was a decision made. You know, maybe 30 years ago that they really needed to resurrect a library, a state-of-the-art library, where scholars could come from around the world um, and build it right here in Alexandria, uh, in memory of that ancient library that burnt. And so th- this facility is just so gorgeous. And if I were a scholar, I would be very happy indeed to, to be studying there. Um, it is,
0: the location is fabulous. It's on the, it's on the Mediterranean and it's really beautiful. The, the other cool thing is that any person can actually sign into their website and create their own bookshelf. At the Mm -hmm. Library of Alexandria so if you they have remarkable treasures and so um I've done that and my friend Dana Stabenow, the author that I traveled to Egypt with the last time we each have our own bookshelf at the Library of Alexandria
1: the other thing that this library has done oh well we're moving on to something else never mind well go ahead finish it's all right Now, the the other thing that this library has done is um, when Napoleon Bonaparte invaded Egypt in the late 1700s, he brought a lot of scientists along with him. So along with the soldiers came um, people who knew about the natural world, people who knew about architecture, people who knew about antiquities, and Napoleon said to them, go out and find stuff um and and so they did and you know back in the olden days they didn't have photographs and so they drew everything and these drawings and descriptions of everything that they saw um everything from birds to temples and tombs um all of these things were put in about two dozen Oversized, leather-bound volumes that wealthy scholars subscribed to because they didn't publish all of these volumes all at once, you know, they would do one, one year, and then the next year they do another, and so it was stretched out over, you know, maybe um, some years. And, um, but to have that collection, oh my goodness, if I were a wealthy woman, that is one of the things that I would buy. I would love to have one of the old, um, complete sets. Uh, It's called the Description Mm d'Egypte. And um, But this library, the Alexandria Library, has digitized all of, all of those volumes. And so you can go in and you can pull up those pages, and that they are just glorious. Um, if if you're interested in that sort of thing, um, yeah. that is one of the wonderful things that you can do.
0: It is wonderful, and I should have mentioned that when I say you can have your own bookshelf, it's all digital. It isn't like they put actual books in the library on your shelf. It means <laughs> that you can you you can put digital images. And so forth. It was also Napoleon's campaign that was responsible for finding the Rosetta Stone, which was the key to understanding the hieroglyphs. It was translated eventually or figured out by Jean, uh, what is his name, Champollion. Um, uh, Jean François. A little bit later, but it, you know, Napoleon did do a lot to um, bring some of historic Egypt's treasures forward.
1: Well, that we are actually, this is a double celebration year because it is not only the 100th anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb, it is the 200th anniversary of the announcement in September 1822 made by Jean-Francois Champollion that he had cracked the hieroglyphic code Um, ever since explorers and archaeologists had been going to egypt they had been seeing hieroglyphs on the walls of tombs and temples and monuments and but they couldn't read it you know the ability to read had been lost and um it really is a very complicated language um i've studied it a bit i still read hieroglyphs like i'm in pre-k <laughs> um, I can read my name, I can count to 10, um, but I can tell you it, it is very difficult. And um, there had been some progress made um, before 1822. There was a, um, a very smart English polymath named Thomas Young, who was working on that puzzle. Um, There was a a Swedish man by the name of Eckerblad, who was also working on it. There was a French man named De Saucy, he was working on it. And Jean-Francois Champollion was De Saucy's student. Um, But Jean-Francois Champollion was really quite exceptional because by the time he was in his early 20s, I mean he knew something like a dozen languages. Um, you know, everything from Greek and Latin, well, of course you could predict that. Um, but you know, Hebrew and Aramaic and Akkadian cuneiform, I mean, you know, and, and so he he really had a sense of of how languages functioned and the bits sure. of languages and how they fit together. And he was the one who really understood how hieroglyphs functioned, that it's really very complicated. A sign can actually be what it is. you know, in other words, you see a sign and it looks like a bull and it does mean bull. Um but that sign has a pronunciation value. I think it's ka. And so it, it, that can be combined with, other images other hieroglyphs and so that image doesn't mean bull it just means for you to pronounce it as 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 that sign is pronounced but it's part of a larger um it's part of a larger word um and then it can also be a collective noun because that sign of a bull can mean a herd of bulls um not just one bull so you know Very complicated. complicated. The royal
0: names were put in what are called cartouche, so they had sort of a framework around them, and um, it was like a a like a signet ring, more or less, you know, that that functioned that way, and uh, Champollion was able to do this translation because part of the Rosetta Stone, there are three different languages, the hieroglyphs, um, uh, was in Greek, and old Greek, and I think the middle was demotic, and so he could take the Greek and then go to the egyptian demotic and then he could go to the hieroglyphs i think if he if it had just been hieroglyphs it's not clear to me that he could have really worked it all out oh no that
1: was the key so what you have with the rosetta stone is part of of a of a decree yeah and it was it was put in these three kinds of scripts to make sure that everybody could read it Um, So at the bottom, and it's triangular shaped. So at the bottom, you have the biggest bit, um, which is classical Greek. And then the middle is Demotic. Um, Friends of mine who have studied it call it demonic because it's very (laughs) difficult. Um, That's sort of a scripty way of writing hieroglyphs. And then at the top, the smallest bit, the, the, the top of the triangle are, I think, 14 precious lines and hieroglyphs. Um, But because scholars at the time that the Rosetta Stone was discovered, uh, scholars normally would would learn Latin and ancient Greek, they could translate that ancient Greek pretty quickly. Um, And then that gave them a springboard to start working on the hieroglyph Hieroglyphic signs at the top part of the stone. And you are absolutely right. The royal names are in cartouche, and those were part of the key um, because names are made up of hieroglyphs. And so, you know, if you can compare um, this guy's name with something in ancient Greek, well, then that helps you figure out what those signs are. Um, yeah, so no, it was a remarkable achievement. I have visited
0: the Rosetta Stone in the British Museum in London, and I was going to ask you, Anne. You know, I because there's all this controversy about um, things in, in colonial countries being, you know, returned to the place of origin. Is the Rosetta
1: Stone still in London? Is it still with the British? The, the Rosetta Stone is still indeed in London. Okay. And it is, you know, as as I've said in other venues, I mean, y- you can walk right by it. It doesn't look like anything. I mean, unless you're actually looking for it. It's yeah. very easy to walk or by it. Or you know what it is, you know, it that, that, that makes all the difference. All right. So now here we
0: are and they're wonderful statues, but they're missing things. Which temple is this?
1: Now, I can't quite remember what this was. I think we are also, again, looking at statues of- um, Ramses. Ramses, yeah. Um, And and this is just, again, he Hmm. he was one of the, he was such an egotist. Um, I tease sometimes and say that, yeah, when you're when you're traveling in egypt as a tourist it sometimes seems like every day is Ramses's second day i mean he just filled egypt with colossal statues of himself yeah but um, he built a last too to be fair you know um, yeah, and he was on the throne for a very long time so we had a long time to build stuff um I would, but that's I would, just very typical of what he would do he would just you know have endless statues, endless, extremely large statues of himself. Okay, this is actually Ramsey's
0: mortuary temple, known as the Mm Ramesseum. I found it in the book, and the king is depicted in the form of a god, in the form of the god Osiris, and Mm -hmm. he's standing at each pillar of the portico, and Osiris is is a central character in the Egyptian pantheon of gods, and so the pharaohs would try to, um, you know, resemble him or look after him and so forth. Um, And I'm trying to remember, is the Ramesseum, is it near Karnak?
1: Where in the world is it? Well, so the Ramesseum is on the west bank of the Nile. So in ancient Egypt, it's not all the time, but usually you will have living people on the East Bank and dead people on the West Bank. because Of course, the sun dies in the West every day. Right. And so that was part of the symbolism that the ancient Egyptians were thinking about when they put a lot of their cemeteries in the West and in fact sometimes when egyptologists these days die and we get an alert through email about this person's passing the email will say dr x has gone west mhm um okay. so anyway this is on the west bank and it's on the way when you're going to the valley of the kings you will probably pass this on right. your tour bus um and your tour bus may even stop here it's one of the it's one of the places where tourists get off and walk around and have a look. Yep. Ooh, I don't remember where this is. Help me interesting faces. It might
0: it might be Karnak it might be the um, the big temple in the actual city because but I can't remember for sure. But you can see the lotus um, represented on top of the of the pyramid, the you know the capital of the pyramid. Before you get to the image, is the lotus, I believe.
1: Uh, well, and this looks to me like Hothor because she has those little cow ears, yeah. um, and so that was. Um, she very often appears at the top of columns.
0: Carry on, Peter. There we go. Ah, we're inside a tomb now. Well. Oh, so I love this one. This is one of my favorites.
1: This is one of the very typical images of what is called the heretic rule of Akhenaten. Right. So we are in the what is called the New Kingdom. And when that starts, um, in, in around about. 1500 BC. um, There's a series of what I call great warrior kings, and they sort of, um, they not only sort of restore Egypt um, internally, because Egypt had sort of fallen apart for a period, um, but they start conquering territory to the north and south of Egypt. And so during the rule of these warrior kings and the rule of Ramses II, who comes a little later, um, Egypt had its greatest expanse of territory. Egyptian territory went right up along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, almost uh, actually over the border of what is now Turkey, and then it went down south into what is now Sudan. But um, Amenhotep III um, was one of the great warrior kings, and one, really one of the great pharaohs in the entire 3,000 year sweep of pharaonic history. Um, But unfortunately, his firstborn son died. Um, And so the secondborn son, whose name was also Amenhotep, was the son who was the heir apparent. Now, during the time of Amenhotep III, um, Amenhotep III got to be very interested in a god um, that was represented, as you see here, as the disk of the sun, um, reaching down with its rays to dispense blessings upon the people beneath it. Um, so already under Amenhotep III, um, you know there was an interest in this god. Well, so Amenhotep III dies, and his son Amenhotep um, became Amenhotep IV, and he takes the throne, and he does you know some things that are kind of normal. He, ma- he gets married which a Pharaoh has to do Pharaoh has to get married have children so he marries a woman who is now very famous a woman named Nefertiti. Um, he also builds um, does some building in the temple complex at karnak um, and you know the the statues you know they st- they look a little weird but you know they're not out of line. All of a sudden, for some reason, around year five of Amenhotep IV's reign, he goes a little bonkers. He decides that he is going to leave what we now know as Luxor. Back in those days, it was a city named Waset, and it had been his family's capital for decades and generations. He decides he's gonna leave that. And he's going to go out into the desert and he is going to build a capital from scratch. Um, And he changes his name to Achenaten, so he who is effective for the god Aten. And he names his new capital Achetaten or Horizon of the Aten. And he decides that the official god of ancient Egypt is going to be, you know, this crazy sun god. Um, now, and you know, he he officially suppresses um, some gods, most especially Amun, who was one of the main gods back in Karnak. Um, and, uh, most especially people think because the priests of Amun were very wealthy and very powerful and the king you know, did not want competition for what he was doing. Um, but th- this whole kind of chapter was so weird and actually really, I mean, very horrific. First of all, th- this, was, this was breaking with tradition in a way that Egyptians must have found deeply uncomfortable. Um, And also, all of the people who had to leave Luxor, Waset, and move to this, you know, basically construction site in the middle of nowhere, they must have been deeply unhappy as well. They were leaving their homes, they were leaving all their connections, they were leaving this wonderful, sophisticated cosmopolitan city and, you know, moving to where? The middle of dust. Um, so people must, I mean, you just can imagine how unhappy people were, um, but Akhenaten, you know, worshiped the Aten and, you know, here he is. And, and the sun God is pouring his blessings down, down upon, um, Hmm. people here, him in this, uh, in this relief. Um, now, as soon as Akhenaten drops dead, people start leaving Akhenaten. Um, It it was just... It was in the middle of nowhere. And they moved back to um, Waset, what we now know as Luxor. Now, the interesting thing about this is that in order to build that capital super fast, Akhenaten commanded that stones be cut in a much smaller size that they than they had traditionally been cut before. Um, so his stones weigh about 120 pounds. And we call them tolitat. And they only come from his reign. If you find a stone that is, you know, in that, in that size, you know, 120 pounds, that's a tolitat. And What went up so quickly also came down very quickly. So stone being very useful and very expensive and very valuable, as soon as that city was abandoned, people started to come in and take that stone away and use it for other stuff. And so it's not only the shape of those blocks, but those blocks very often had reliefs on them. And you can see, you know, this art is a little weird. I mean, you look at this and, you know, if if you know ancient Egyptian art, you know that this is from Akhenaten's time period because the art is just so weird. And so when you find these talatah blocks in some other place, you know that they belong to Akhenaten because the art is so weird too. Um, and so one of the things that ancient, that, that modern Egyptologists do is that they, they gather all of these talatat now from all of these many places where they've ended up and they try to put together, it's like um, putting together pieces of broken pottery. They try to put together these reliefs that have been broken apart by people who took the stones and you know, used them willy-nilly in other places. Um, so some, some blocks have been joined and some bits of relief have come to light. Um, but anyway, that, that is, that is, uh, the the
0: portraiture is fascinating, (laughs) I think, and you can see it in statues of Akhenaten, but he has a face, he has a very long nose and chin, and he really looks kind of Ethiopian and, um, you know, rather than Egyptian. And he usually has this kind of pot belly um the way you know the way they drew it there's often um a kind of stomach for um for him that i find really interesting i just saw a picture of Tutankhamun and um and and his wife Ankhsenaton and and they both look like that and i don't know was that just that period end where they did that very you yeah, know
1: sort uh, of nubian look well that was that period and um there was there's been a lot of discussion about what it means and why it was done and what the symbolism is. Ah, right. The, so that, here
0: I, that, I found a photo. I think you can see, no you can't see it because I forgot that's on the screen. But there's a, a beautiful photograph in the book of Tudankamon and um Anka um, And you can see that kind of belly thing and even the the longer nose, um, so there's some thought that maybe there was, in fact, um, you know, African ancestry in this in this family because of their physiognomy, or maybe it was just the way the the artist looked. But we should also mention that Tutankhamen was actually Tutankhaten until his father died, and they decided to abandon the new religion and go back to the old one
1: well there there is that too i I was also going to mention that when egyptologists when the early egyptologists started to see um images like we see on the screen here they thought that akhenaten was actually female ah because because he was very fleshy like a woman right yeah. Um, and it was a German archaeologist who figured out, I think it was Lepsius who figured out that, mm, no, this is a guy. Um, but yes, Tutankhamen was um, was born probably in Achetaten, and his name was Tutankhamen, so living image of the Aten, and some people think that Tutankhamun's father was Akhenaten. Some people are not so sure. Right. Um, it's another um, part of great discussion among Egyptologists. But you know what? Whatever, um, however, that discussion runs, Akhenaten was clearly, you know, closely related to Tutankhamun, and Tutankhamun was probably born in Akhetaten. But, you know, so Akhenaten dies, um, and then who takes the throne? Well, this is a sort of a shadowy period, again, greatly discussed among Egyptologists, and we think maybe Nefertiti herself may have ruled for a while, um, maybe as a co-regent with Akhenaten, and then after he died, she rules on her own, she may have taken a man's name because it was you know, again, deeply disturbing for Egyptians to have a woman on the throne. Um, and then there was this shadowy person named Smenkhare, And, you know, he's maybe was part of this family. And how does he fit in? We don't know. We think maybe he ruled. Um, but finally, you know, Tutankhaten comes from the throne, comes to the throne. And... He's a child of nine. Now, you have to figure that, you know, children grew up a lot more quickly than they do now. Um, So he probably had more agency than the typical nine-year-old these days, but still, he was a child. And the thought now was that he had advisors. He had an old family retainer named I, who would succeed him on the throne. And the guy who was in charge of the military, his name was Horemheb, who would succeed, I. And these two advisors and others um, sort of worked with Tutankhaten, to A, change his name, to Amun, living image of the Amun. Ankesan Amun was maybe his half-sister and her name was actually Ankesan Patan um, and she had to change her name too. Um, and then they started to set Egypt back on its traditional path. So the Temple of Amun in Karnak was restored and um, the people were renamed and everybody moved back to Waset. and they just tried to restore what the ancient Egyptians called Ma'at or the proper order of things. And so, although King Tut did not rule for that long, um, I think he's one of the most pivotal um, figures in all of ancient Egyptian history. Oh, these are the Colossi of Memnon. So, this is another, um, these are, I believe, statues of Amenhotep III. Um, You will pass them on your way to the Valley of the Kings. um, And in fact, As I very often tell people, um, when you pass them, if you're on the proper side of the tour bus, get out your camera because that's one of the best times to take a photograph of these statues. And what you see are the hot air balloons that go off at dawn and take you over um, areas around the Valley of the Kings. Mm A quick personal story so i was very lucky i got sent to egypt on a number of occasions for work by national geographic and i would sit in my hotel in luxor in the morning at breakfast super early and watch these balloons in the sky thinking to myself one of these days i want to come back and take a balloon ride And so my husband and I were very lucky in 2012, I think it was a year after Arab Spring, we went back as tourists and we had an opportunity to sign up for a hot air balloon ride. and, And I did get to float over the landscape in the hot air balloon. So, you know, put stuff on your bucket list and make it happen. I think this may be one of the temples at Philae Um, that's what it looks like to me and again you know you can see how how these temples how 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 these temples just got filled in with rocks and sand and broken pottery and um, this is when the early explorers and the early Egyptologists came along, I mean, this is what they found. Um, so think about the difference between this and um, and what you see today, with all of the sand sort of cleared away. Um, but but you know, these old photographs are really wonderful, and the um, the designer for this book. Um, treasures of egypt is a man named david griffin and he is one of the best designers working today in the book and magazine business and if this book looks like anything it is thanks to david because he just makes things look magical on the page but it was his idea to pair old photographs like this with photographs that show these monuments and temples and tombs as they appear today which i think is one of the really fascinating parts of the book Um, we tried to do that in every chapter to give you at least one spread where you see an old photograph like this and and what it looks like today
0: and we are very grateful for your record because i have read that because of climate change and increasing humidity In Egypt, the the climate that preserves so much of this is changing and therefore, you know, they're making a replica of the tomb of of Hatshepsut's temple, for example, because between the tourists and the climate change, the temple is beginning to really suffer. And just like the caves at Lascaux, they're gonna make a facsimile and that will be what tourists get to go to. Um, And so I'm grateful for all these photographs because some of this may not survive.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, this is, um, do you have a tag on this? What is this? Um, it is, I'm trying to think, I've been there
0: because it certainly looks familiar. It's a, you know, obviously, an. an I think it's the temple at Karnak. I think it's the entrance to it.
1: Mm, I don't know. Um, is, the, the photographs aren't labeled, unfortunately. They're just, uh, right. But yeah. Well, okay. So th- this is whatever temple this is. Um, it, it, I, I, I think it's perhaps not Karnak because Maybe I don't not. because I don't see the line of sphinxes going up to it. But anyway, this right. is this is very typical of um, of temples, most especially from the New Kingdom. You have this monumental gateway, which we call a pylon. Um, but it really does make um, a statement about the building or the complex that you are going to enter through this gateway. Okay, is this Ramsey? This is the
0: entrance to Ramsey the second mortuary temple at Medina Tabu. Oh,
1: this is Medina Tabu,
0: yeah. Yep, because I found the photo, right. Yep. And those those gates were oftentimes those are the things that survived those amazing pylons that um, led you into things. Yeah.
1: Well, when I was first studying Egyptology, you know, people would talk about pylons, and I would think to myself, (laughs) what are they? Well, that this is what they are. And there, of course, is the
0: Sphinx with um, people in front of it.
1: Yeah. So again, this is one of the old photographs that David Griffin pulled out. Um, Unless you are on a special tour, you can't get that close to the Sphinx these days. There's a gallery that's been built around it and you're sort of standing up on a a walkway, um, looking at it from afar um but you but on the giza plateau you can have a camel ride that that's one of the things and um and i i did it and i have my photograph taken on the camel um so you you can do that there at Giza. right
0: so that's the great pyramid behind it and i should mention that the pyramids and the sphinx are built on what's called the giza plateau which is west of Cairo, but the reason they're on the plateau was because of what Ann mentioned earlier, the Nile flooding, they had to build them where the river, you know, at a height in which the river flooding wouldn't ruin them. And so, um, you know, you have to go up to them. I mean, they're still on a, on a plateau. And one of the great pleasures in going to West Cairo is to stay at the uh, Mina House Hotel, which uh, was a hunting lodge. And if you're sitting in the right place in your balcony and drinking your coffee, when the sun comes up, the Great Pyramid will rise up right in front of you. It's really (laughs) gorgeous. Um, And then the the museum that Ann mentioned, the the Grand Gem, Grand Egyptian Museum, is gonna be behind that Great Pyramid and you can walk to it from Mina House and from the plateau. So that's where it all starts. Unfortunately, the airport at Cairo is in East Cairo, and the hard part is to get from the airport across Cairo, which is one of the biggest and most congested cities in the world. And I think they are considering an underground, or they've already built to some degree an underground tunnel or something for the road to try to get around, you know, the incredible congestion in Cairo to get out to Giza.
1: I was just there a month ago, and there is instead of the old pyramids road, which took horrible forever. Um, it was very interesting and I always loved it. And I have a soft spot in my heart for the old pyramid road, but um, there's a new expressway yeah. to go out to Giza. Um, but the, one of the really fun things, well, there are a couple of fun things about the Mina House. Um, you can get rooms um, that allow you, that give you pyramid views. Right. So you get up in the morning and you fling open your curtains and there are the pyramids and you know, you're just inspired for the day. Um, but the other thing is that in the early days of archaeology in Giza, uh, the um, the people who were digging assembled on one of the um, porches of the Mina House and divvied up the concessions. So they pointed and they said, well, the French are going to dig over here. And the Germans are going to dig here and the Americans are going to dig here and that's how they divvied it up, but it was, but it was off one of the porches of the Mina house and they were just looking out into the landscape and saying Mm -hmm. well you know we'll take this bit over here. It's amazing is that are there any more photos Patrick. Uh-huh. Oh, so this is at Siwa Oasis, and I have never been there. It's on my bucket list, and this is a pool that is known. I think it's the you know, Pool of Cleopatra. So, uh, the, the legend has it that she came here to Siwa Oasis and, you know, bathed herself in these fabulous oasis waters of the oasis. Um, I think. It, this this symbolizes in a larger sense um, what is going on in the western desert. Um, the western desert, that whole sort of desert plateau sits atop a massive aquifer. Um, and in, that means that there are I think five places in the middle, literally in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the Western desert, where water bubbles up and creates an oasis. And Siwa is one of those places. So you have grapes growing there, you have dates going there. In the Roman times, the Romans were especially interested in these places. Um, Egypt was the breadbasket of Rome, all those yeah. soldiers running around conquering everybody everywhere. Well, they had to eat something, right? And a lot of that grain came from Egypt, not only grown along the Nile. Which had seasonal growing because of the flooding of the Nile. Um, But here in the oases, because the water was there constantly and you could have more than grow more than one crop every year. So the oases were very important. in terms of providing grain to the Roman Empire. And also the Romans were there to control trade and traffic. Um, There there were trade routes that went across the Western desert um, from from the early times. I mean, even before the first kings, um, people were out in the desert and and leaving images pecked into the rocks um, in the desert, um, even before the first kings were there. Well, the
0: Nile Delta was one of the most fertile areas in the world, and Alexandria, at the end of the independent Egypt before Rome took it over, was one of the great trading cities. But they also went south, and the, the metal, the gold, and all that wonderful stuff really came from Nubia, um, which meant they had to go past the cataracts in the Nile to get to it. Um, so um, there was a huge amount of constant traffic and so forth and different groups of people that were part of ancient Egypt. It wasn't just one single family and one single culture. That's um, the lion guy. And he's posed like a Pharaoh, isn't he? With the, yep, with the double uraeus and the whole bit, and the gold. It's beautiful.
1: Anything else, Patrick, Are we I don't have there? anything to say about that. Um, this looks to me like Karnak, those very fat columns yeah. with, Um, the capitals are uh, you know they're iconic and you you really do feel dwarfed when Mm. you stand by those colon colonnades um but this was a huge complex um there was um well so there was the temple to amun there was the temple to moot where betsy bryan at the um, Johns Hopkins University has been working for many years. Um, everybody and his brother built things here, and and co-opted things that other kings had built, and um, and tore down things that previous kings had built, and then you know built their own new stuff. Um, so it's just a a, a really f- f- wonderful conglomeration of monumental building from multiple reigns of multiple kings. This is, oh gosh, I can't remember what this is either. How do I?
0: Okay, well, let me see the guy riding towards it, whatever it was. It was some kind of um, temple construction, I think. You
1: want me to keep going? I'm not exactly sure how many photos we can move on. We can move on. I have nothing to say about this. All right. Ah, musical instrument. Uh, So beautiful. This is a harp. And I believe this is from the New Kingdom, but. Um, the really interesting part is if you look at the very top of that harp, the head there is the head of a Nubian, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes Egypt had a very interesting relationship with Nubia, and I think the and people are starting to think about that relationship differently. I mean, when I first started studying Egyptology, it was just that Egypt conquered Nubia, and, you know, yeah. Nubia was a conquered territory. Now, I think the thought is, you know, there was an ebb and flow. There was a, there were times, certainly, when Egypt, Egyptian presence was very, um, very much down in Nubia, and The Egyptians, certainly in the Middle Kingdom, built a lot of forts down there. Nubia was the source of gold. It was also the gateway to uh, parts um, of Africa to the south that provided things like leopard skins and baboons and ostrich eggs and elephant husks and stuff like that. Um, But, you know, there were also times when Nubia had the upper hand, you know, most especially um, one of the later dynasties, um, the 25th dynasty, the um, Egypt was sort of having a a low moment and the Nubians decided that they were going to come in and take over Egypt and restore Ma'at, they were very traditional, restore things as they should be. Um, And so the so-called black pharaohs ruled Egypt for a dynasty. Um, So I guess this harp just sort of symbolizes uh, that ebbing and flowing of the relationship between Nubia and Egypt and, the, the fact that Egyptologists are starting to look at it in a very different light
0: you bet and if you go to Aswan, one of the principal things to see in Aspen is there's an extraordinary Nubian museum and it's all filled with things from Nubia it's right around the corner from the Cataract Hotel and yeah. it's amazing you can spend a whole day there and see how they are um, you know Re- re-examining all that. There's even a Nubian village near Aswan, which were basically a kind of underclass that provided servants and so forth. Um, and if you can ever find it, a woman named Lauren Haney, H-A-N-E-Y, who wrote a series of mysteries. Uh, unfortunately, I think they were just in paperback and probably don't exist anymore. And they were set at the first cataract and had a lot to do with explaining how Egypt and Nubia, you know, they traded and how they got together and um how you even cross the river because it was incredibly dangerous at the cataracts people drowned all the time trying to go across it so this is what is this a canal on the way to Saqqara that's what it looks like
1: I think that's what it is yeah. uh the, you know the point to this photograph is that in antiquity Egypt was an agricultural country yeah. and in many ways still is and this scene is just timeless Um, If you are out in the countryside um, and you are there, I think this is at dawn and the mist is just sort of lifting off. This is not the Nile. I think this is one of the canals that are used for irrigation. But this is just very typical. People go to their fields um, on their donkeys and take their cattle to graze. Um, they're, They're very often growing alfalfa to feed their cattle and their donkeys. And so the fields are, you know, just a beautiful emerald green um, and, and they grow other things as well. I remember on one of my first trips, one of my first work trips to Egypt, I got very taken with um, carrots that were piled up in pyramid shaped um, piles by the side of the road for sale um because the carrots were purple carrots so you know our driver was was so taken with me being taken with these carrots that he pulled over, got out of the car, bought some carrots and brought them back so that I could taste them. Um, And they tasted like normal carrots, you know, they were just purple. Um, But anyway, that that's just one of the things that that people are are growing here.
0: I have read that Lake Marietta, which is um, up at the Nile Delta uh, near Alexandria, at this point in time is only 17% of the area that it occupied in ancient Egypt when it was really huge. And when Alexander expanded Alexandria, which was just a little fishing village, um, that there was this huge lake of fresh water not very far from the ocean, and they built a canal between Lake Marietta and the Mediterranean to help shipping, but it's now shrunk um, a Mm. drastic degree. And of course the Aswan Dam has actually interrupted the natural flow of of how the Nile worked. It's also kept the animals from moving back and forth. They can't go through the dam. So the hippopotami and other things are stuck on one side of the dam or the other. So there's some downsides to the Aswan Dam as well as some pluses. This is um, a boat building um, deal. And there's a terrific boat out by the big pyramid in Giza, but I suspect it's being moved into Jim, isn't it, Anne?
1: It has been moved to the gym. That was one of Khufu's funerary boats. Yeah. There were two of them that were discovered, and one of them um, was reconstructed um, from more than a... Th- they These boats had been... Well, so these boats were built from cedar planks that had been imported from Lebanon. Um, cedar is a really wonderful wood. It resists salt water. It resists insects. It's flexible, and it, you can get really long, straight planks from it. Um, and, and of course, you know, Egypt doesn't have a lot of forests. It has, you know, some scrubby acacia and some and some sycamores, you know, I mean, that's okay for making small things like pegs, but when you want to build a big royal boat, as we see here, I think this is the tomb of T, Ti, T-I, um, you, you need to import wood from, um, from Lebanon. And so Khufu had two of these massive boats built, and then deconstructed and buried in pits that had been cut into the limestone bedrock of the Giza Plateau. So in 1954, one of those boats was found. And I think reconstruction started in 1957, if I remember correctly. And, um, and the man who was doing it was an Egyptian, uh, one of the master restorers and he, he was working with more than a thousand separate pieces. And these planks were very cool because they had holes drilled through them um, because these planks were actually sewn together with rope. Um, and then when the water hit them, the ropes would swell and bring the planks flush <laughs> together and the water then would be, the boat would be watertight. Um, but anyway, um the from from about the 1960s through i think was august 2021 um this boat from this pit um, was on display right near khufu's pyramid in its own museum i think it was called the solar boat museum it was a wonderful thing to visit and the it was fabulous, um, but you know there there were issues in climate control, and uh, and the decision was made to move that boat to the gem. So it moved to the gem in August 2021, and I think um, the parts of the boat in the second pit, some of those parts have already been moved to the gym and the rest of the parts are going to be moved and then the two boats will be reconstructed and and be side by side in the gym um i think that is the plan which will be
0: great patrick i realize suddenly it's 4:15 um we've gone <laughs> way over so maybe we should stop the slideshow um i have a couple of photos i can show you this is actually how Can I do it without the light shining on it? This is the boat museum. That's how it looked um, by the pyramids. But um, I was going to show you because this is my very favorite photo. This is the view you get from Mina House. Um, You can look right through the gate and see the great pyramid behind it. And if you are there in the morning, um, you can see it. Where is it? Where is my photo Um, of it rising up? And so this is how it looks. With this wonderful view of the pyramid, and you can see it through the, the palm trees and so forth. But I was going to find you before we quit, I was going to find you at the entrance to King Tut's, because, you know, for all the excitement and all of the glamour and all the rest of it that surrounds King Tut's tomb, in point of fact, it's actually sort of pedestrian um, to go visit it today. It has this little, there it is, has a little funny sign outside that says Tomb of Common. And then you can see um, there's a, a couple of, this is, this is how one of the paintings looks inside around the sarcophagi. But the most famous thing inside it is it, that you can see is this wall of baboons. It's kind of hard to see them with my phone, sorry. Um, but you know because it's been emptied, um, what they've left there is the mummy, isn't it,
1: Anne? Isn't his actual mummy in the, in the tomb? I think it is. The mummy is there. Um, There has been a lot of discussion about leaving the mummy there, but there are a lot of people who argue um, very strenuously that King Tut needs to be in the place where he was buried. That's Uh, right. Because when his Ka comes back, his Ka will be looking um, on the tomb for the mummy. And if if the Ka cannot find the mummy, you know, that's not a good thing. So, True.
0: and that's the photograph of Carnavon and Howard Carter when they're standing there, kind of opening up the tomb, which they found. Um, yeah. Anyway, it's a really interesting story. It's KV Kings Valley 62 is the nomenclature. But if you go there, I recommend very much that you, it, it, they rotate it, they only allow you to go, I think it's five tombs a day. They're trying to control it. So you can't just spend a whole day going in and out of tombs, you have to pick Whatever it is. And then you can also go to the Valley of the Queens, and there's a couple of fabulous tombs over there. You have a photo of Nefertari in the book, not Nefertiti, but Nefertari, who was the, fam- the, the beloved wife of Ramesses II. It was his favorite wife, and he built her this extraordinary tomb. So, you know, there's endless stuff to see. But as I said, a lot of it is, um, is going to turn into facsimiles or it's going to go undercover or something because of climate change. And the damage to it—that the dry, arid climate that allowed all this stuff to survive—is changing. And you know, with Ethiopia building its own dam, and the Nile—you know—the flow of the Nile is going to be changing as well. There's just a lot happening. So I think your book is, is an incredible watch. treasure. Um, and as I said, it's my favorite recommendation for a Christmas gift. Anybody <laughs> will like it. Um, and there's associated books that have also come out called "The Royal Couple" about com and Anka Ankhosayaman, or maybe it's about Akhenaten and Nefertiti, I can't remember. But anyway, um, there's a, a number of publications, and I put them all together in our November book news. So if you go to poisonpen.com and click on book news and then look for the PDF for the November issue, there's a whole section of books starting with this one, um, but other supporting books about this um, wonderful 100th anniversary. So, Am, thank you very much for spending time with us. Last year, we talked about Lost Tombs in Ancient Cities. Do we have a project for next year?
1: Well, I have a project, but it's uh, it's not going to be in a hardback book.
0: Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.